is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. A content warning, there are brief mentions of violence and suicide in this episode. Today, we have a brand new song from Elysian Fields, but first, the story that inspired the song. My name is Raven Leilani, and I'm principally a writer. I did start as a a painter, and I think that has informed the subjects that I write about. I had seen a couple of documentary pieces about Marina Abramovic, And I thought that would be an an interesting subject if it were built around a Black woman whose body, you know, necessarily occupies a different space in the world. So I had a conceit already, but I also just wanted to write about art and spectacle and its intersection with with Blackness. I think the the ideas of suffering and art are often sort of um, linked, tangled. Often that conversation's about resources, um, the starving you do while you make the art. But in this case, it, it was more about sort of the market demand around black art and the role of suffering and trying to navigate that as a young black artist, whether or not you, you appease that demand or work against it in this short story. And it was exploring that conflict around giving into that Uh, to that demand and its intersection with one's own experience. As I wrote this, it was also important for me to to at least try and render an artist who isn't given entirely and totally to the demand of those white spaces, but is trying to do her own thing within those confines. She's trying to make work around the obliteration of the body, despite the space that her body holds in the world. Raven's sharing an excerpt from her story, Breathing Exercise, today, but the full story is online and will be linked in today's show notes. It is an intense read and is based in part on Raven's lived experience. Around 2016 or so, I I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And for that entire year, I was trying to find out what was happening. You know, I knew that something was wrong and the experience of having to advocate for myself, of the kind of myriad specialists that I, that I saw, the, the way I felt I had to perform my illness to get help, the sense of hopelessness I felt. It's like cameras down my throat, a barium swallow where you like, you know, they give you this sort of solution that sort of, you know, kind of lights up your insides when you go into like the, the x-ray. I have like a photo of myself in the hospital bed with the I voted sticker. And the, that entire night I couldn't speak because I'd had a camera down my throat. They found a shadow between my lungs and behind my heart. And it's in such a place where it couldn't be biopsied, you know, like they can't just check it out. And so it had to be a massive surgery. Obviously, I'm, I'm okay today, but it was, it was a long saga in which my body didn't feel like my own. I felt the longer that I went without answers, the more insane I felt. And I felt the failure of those medical institutions acutely. Three years later, I finally felt that I could, I could commit that to, to prose. 
you know, how racism, one of its functions is, is that it, it conditions you to disbelieve your own eyes, what is happening to you, what is always happening to you. It's, it's ambient, it's, it's environment. I was writing about a person who is literally sick but also writing about uh, the sickness that you feel because of ex you're, you're existing in, you know, the racism, which is essentially like air. I felt in writing that, you know, her trying to be believed, going places and trying to advocate for herself and advocate for the reality that she's feeling this invisible thing that she's laboring under and not being believed is a, you know, is just a also an ordinary and mundane experience for a black person who is trying to say what is happening to them and who is ailing because of what is happening to them. How do you explore those themes in your art in a way that does not just feed the machine that is hungry for that carnage? The, the answer isn't necessarily to not talk about it or not explore those themes. You don't want it to be cynical. You know, you don't want it to be spectacle. You don't want it to just be shock. And then that's so much what's the, the core of the story, too, is you essentially have an artist whose, whose craft is in some ways about shock, about risk, about abjection. But that, I think, cannot just exist by itself. And that's one of the questions she's mulling over is, is what I'm doing, does it have soul? Does it have meaning? Does it have intentionality? Am I feeding cynically? the machine that is hungry for uh, this sort of spectacle of, of suffering. Many of us, we go to those institutions and we say something is wrong, you know, I need help. And they send us out into the world with Advil to die. This is an excerpt of Breathing Exercise by Raven Leilani, read by the author. When she began to have trouble breathing, Miriam tried to wait it out. She monitored the daily pollen count, bought a neti pot, and tried not to think about the gallerists who no longer returned her calls. After an opening of her new work, which had only three attendees, a pair of Danish tourists, and a woman who wanted to know if the toilets were free, she went to a party in Poughkeepsie and received a crushing pep talk from a sculptor whose assistants were always under the age of 23. "'You're still young,' he said, and all night people offered similar condolences for her career." Later, the host of the party corralled everyone into a room with an old tube TV. When he turned it on, she could hear the crackle of the cathode. He adjusted the antenna and said he was going to show them a documentary. It was about competitive tickling. As they watched, a hush settled over the room. A man looked into the camera and described being bound and tickled. They told me it was about endurance, he said. I was 13. It made Miriam uneasy, and she excused herself and took the earliest Metro North into the city that she could find. As soon as she got on the train, she put her head between her knees and tried to breathe. She called her mother, and they had a nice conversation until they came to the subject of her work. It had been eleven years since she'd left home, eight since she'd graduated from a mid-tier art school, and made her name showing audiences how much abuse the human body could withstand. It isn't sustainable, her mother said, and technically, she was right. As Miriam was getting off the train, the first email came. Hack bitch, it began, before segueing into a surprising deconstruction of one of her more recent shows. Soft depictions of black women in ornate Victorian dress, horsehair crinoline, ivory boning, bantu knots. Subtler than her larger body of work, meaning it involves significantly less self-harm. 
Why not just kill yourself, the author wrote, after a long treatise about the round-earth conspiracy. At home, she tried to open up her airways with peppermint oil and steam. She took a Xanax and walked round in circles with her arms above her head. A man was playing trumpet across the street, and she opened the window and asked him to stop. Not for the first time, her apartment felt as if it was too small. It was 545 hyper-utilized square feet, a one-bedroom and bedsty that she could afford only because the closest subway was five blocks away. She regretted going to the party, but invitations were not coming the way they had when she was 25, when she fed yam and pig intestines through a cotton gin and could still be someone's age-inappropriate girlfriend, when she rigged a voting machine to a hose and stood in a glass tank as patrons cast their votes, when the confluence of an unimpeachable pelvic floor and a strong debut made her into a wanton Brooklyn-dwelling monster. Those were the days. Days when her mother called and asked why she would do these things to herself in public for white people. Miriam didn't have an answer, only that there was something pure about force, about the fervent belief in her own body, which could technically be boiled down to such cliched maxim as mind over matter and no pain, no gain. She found a place in her mind that was dark and cool and still, and then she opened a show at the Domino Sugar Factory and let herself be repeatedly pushed down a flight of stairs. Now she was 29, and her career was not going as planned. Miriam says relax. A show in which she sat for two hours with a lie relaxer in her hair had not been received well. After an hour, the sodium hydroxide had begun to eat through her scalp, and she was hospitalized. The reviews were embarrassing. Articles on the vague hotepian undertones of the project, the self-inflicted martyrdom for a problem as tired, as 90s, as Western European beauty standards. And finally, the criticism which at first felt shallow but now worried her as she moved beyond an age where it felt good enough just to shock and awe, that she was making a spectacle of black pain, feeding the machine that she loathed. She made attempts to remedy this. Projects organized in secret with scrappy, progressive galleries, unfazed or actively downed for the legal repercussions of not letting white people into her shows, of charging them double, of making them wear signs around their necks that said, I am not welcome here. She put on shows like George Washington's Teeth, in which she collected the teeth of some white patrons and made bespoke silver grills. But ultimately, how she explained it to her mother was that she had somehow broken into an industry in which she was not particularly welcome, and she was just doing what she could to survive. She made a Rube Goldberg machine, 50 dominoes, 18 gumballs, 70 rubber bands, and one glass of warm salt water poised above the synthetic hymen to terminate in the utterance of the N-word. She branded herself with a razor poem she'd drawn from excerpts of Huckleberry Finn. White people came in giddy droves, excited to say the few words they were not allowed under the guise of discussing art. A few days after the party, there was another message. She knew it was from the same person because of the email address, a generic.org with no corresponding organization, but this time he signed his name. Tragic Negress, it began. I read your interview, and I had a few points. She imagined he was normal, indistinct. To imagine him grotesque somehow felt less true, like a child's idea of evil, in which there is no dissonance between the heart and the face. It was just as likely that he was a competent and active community member, a new father, a guy on Lexapro with a dog waiting for him to come home. Of course, Hitler's dog must have loved him too. The only thing she knew was that he was a local, as he spoke obsessively about an exhibit he'd recently seen at Hauser and Wirth in Chelsea. Dear Richard, she wrote, you think you hate me, but you are actually obsessed with me and that's the thing you hate. And even this made her feel out of breath. She hoped she might feel better after going to the gym. But after two minutes on the treadmill, she had to stop. 
It took her aback that her body, which she had punished thoroughly for years, was now incapable of accommodating such a small request. She started the treadmill again, but it was too much. She had the sensation that there was something hard and insoluble in her throat, like a diamond or some amalgamation of the microplastics in New York's water supply. Her trainer took her aside and asked if she was all right. He was a jarhead from Staten Island who didn't believe in excuses, and sometimes he pinched the fat that still remained around her stomach and made her keep going until she cried. But now he put his hand on her shoulder and told her to breathe, and she shrugged off his hand and said, I can't. The next morning, she took the train to a clinic in Sunset Park and told her primary care physician that it felt as if she had wool in her lungs. While she described her symptoms, he kept glancing at his watch. In a way, this comforted her. If the situation were dire, she imagined he would be a better audience. So she was relieved when he simply told her to go home and get some sleep. But a week later, she felt worse, as if every valuable organ in her chest were distended with dark city air. She logged into her health insurance portal, poorly designed bit of JavaScript for patients insured through her artist union and sent messages to her physician about the state of her health that did not receive a response. Richard kept in touch. As she expected, her response had not deterred him. It had encouraged him. I'll find you, he wrote. It'd be nothing to find your address. Maybe this is why your work has gotten so tepid. Maybe you feel a little too safe. She couldn't pretend that some of this didn't hurt her feelings, comments about her cunt, about how her head might look on a stick, whatever. But the comments about her work, she carried them around with her all day. Although he was not alone, this particular critical response was familiar, that her level of self-exhibition corresponded inversely with her level of safety. Who is this for? her mother asked. And within the question was an accusation that her work could not be for black people, for black women, creatures so powerless that to invite further subjugation was redundant, perverse. Miriam stammered when she tried to explain herself. She did not feel powerless. She felt searingly present in the world, and sometimes she wanted to be reduced. Now for the song written in response. Please note, all music in the next section is by and courtesy of Elysian Fields. My name is Jennifer Charles. I try not to define myself because I, I don't think of myself as, an, as a this or a that. Orin and I are Elysian Fields, so we are the music makers. We've been doing this for a long time. I'm very honored to have the chance to do this. I'm especially thrilled to have been asked by Raven Leilani because uh, ever since I read Luster, I've been a really big fan and I read it like, I already ordered it before it had come out. I have writer friends that, you know, had early copies before it was out and, I, and it, the moment it came, I was, read it and I loved it. I absolutely loved the story and it blew me away in the same way that after reading Lester, you're just left with this kind of very inspired and excited feeling because she's so fearless. And I love that. I love that she goes to places where other people don't dare to go. And she's really a master at that. And that's the kind of thing that really, really excites me. 
it just really, really fired me up. <laughs> Story, you see your protagonist continuing to try and empower herself through her courage and her refusal to quit. And there's something very feminist about that. And that's why I love and relate to it on multiple levels. No matter how little you leave her character, you can never take away her power. She's unbreakable, unshakable. What I'm really talking about in the song is the life of an artist. It's what I'm bound to. You can try to diminish me, but it's not going to work. And in the same way, her character puts herself in the greatest danger yet. She's still showing up for herself. She's just going to go fearlessly into the lion's mouth and she's going to create, she's going to make art. She's going to make art out of it. Her ending is left open and I like that about it. The, the point being that you have no choice, whatever the cost, and maybe the cost is yourself, in order to have a seat at the table. You'll go as far as you need to go and people might not understand you. You might not even understand it yourself, but you'll never quit. And that's what, 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 what I say in my song, I'll never retire. As an artist, you have to be vulnerable. As an artist, you put yourself out there. Whether you're a painter or a writer or a songwriter or a circus performer, whatever you're doing, you're, you're offering your, your, yourself, you're offering your work, and that's a vulnerable place to be. You, you call on the, the things that keep you going, whether your mother says no, or whether people think you're shit and they don't write about you or talk about you, or somebody wants to exploit you or rape you, you keep doing what you do and you, you take back the power, you, you, you keep going and you don't retire. When I asked Raven why she picked Elysian Fields for this episode, she explained that her connection to the band ran deep. The reason I love art, the reason I ever started painting, and so the reason I started writing, is my brother, who is no longer with us, but he was where I got all my music. He gave me my first Elysian Fields album. <laughs> I'm a bit woo-woo. To me, that feels a bit cosmic. Being able to, to work with them uh, was a dream in, in a lot of ways, but I do think that the textures of their music are, are one, it's, it's overwhelmingly like music that I write too, I'm, I write to music, but the textures of the music, they're dark and sultry, and that, <laughs> it's weird to, see, to have to qualify what kind of art, what kind of um, writing I, I do, but, you know, a lot of my writing is preoccupied with the internal, with consciousness, with those sort of dark spaces inside us, and also the body, also the sort of carnality of being alive. And I feel like uh, Elysian Fields really 
captures that that feeling. Um, for me, it was the it was the formative aspect of it. Them being, um, you know, music that I that I've loved for a long time and that I inherited essentially from um, someone who's really important to me and was like the artist who kind of made me an artist. And you know, yeah, I it's it's sort of a dream. My brother, he was always sort of like a natural teacher. You know, he'd come home with his portfolio from art school and I'd be the kid's sister and he'd give me, you know, his like extremely high quality paints and, and you know, colored pencils and, and let me play. A lot of my first sketchbooks, you know, he supplied me with. He really centered the feeling of the thing, you know, he was kind, but also straightforward. You know, if I showed him something, and I couldn't really feel what was right. He would, he would, oh, he would say, "You're, you're thinking too much," you know. And, and I, and I hold, I still hold that principle really close to me, which is, I think that the best writing I do, the best painting I do, the gut feeling is center. The, um, the id is center. Um, the articulation comes way later. Articulation happens like right now in this moment, you know. He had ALS and he had the kind that starts in the hands rather than the feet and so he lost the ability to paint you know sooner rather than later but he was still making these renderings you know he as long as he could manage it he was doing it he lived for art and it's really truly there's so much there's so much that i am because of who he was, and there's the art part portion, but there also is the the music portion, which is you know that I would visit him, and he would send me on my way with like eight new CDs, like all of which that I hadn't heard. You know, I'm really thankful to him for for what he gave me. Raven and Jennifer have spoken. Jennifer didn't know before this about Raven's brother. Hmm. That, that really hurts. I'm really moved and touched to uh, learn the journey and how she came to us because uh, I, I really believe that that's how, how things happen in life, you know. We find the things that speak our language. I asked Raven to tell me about her first reaction to hearing the song. They captured it so well while making it a thing kind of entirely of its own, like built into the song, I feel like are acknowledgments of performance, you know, of of spectacle. And her vocals are are dreamy. It's wild to to know that that the material was 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 mine, <laughs> you know, like I I completely flipped and I, I do have to say, like, one of the first things I felt was that I really wished that my brother could hear it, you know? Like, it, it, it's so, it's such a wild thing. This is Elysian Fields with their brand new song, The Contortionist. Sun on I'll never retire 
Was Elysian Fields with the Contortionist? Special thanks to Sarah Heckel and Lance Scott Walker for helping me put this episode together. The next and final episode of Season 5 will feature a reading from David Sedaris and a song written in response by Jake Ewald of Slaughter Beach Dog. 
I have a new song out this week. It's called My Heart's Still Yours, and I wrote it with my 17-year-old daughter, Ruby, who also sings on it. It's streaming all the places. Speaking of, Songwriter is in part an effort to encourage and inspire new art. With that in mind, I've made a new page on the Songwriter site. And that's where I'll be sharing any art, songs, poems, paintings, etc., inspired by episodes, however directly or indirectly. If you go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash community art right now, you can see some album covers made by artist, musician, and climate activist Jacob Corvita in response to several recent episodes. And you can also get the email where you can submit the art that you make. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artist and the producer who makes it, please consider getting a premium subscription at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews and kind words in real life or on social media are always appreciated as well. Yes, I mean you. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.